0: Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisory Practice podcast by Snap Projections, episode 39. I'm your host, Pavel Braminski, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insight, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisory practice today. For more information, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Ryan Fraser. Ryan, a CFP and CIM, is a nationally known plan giving expert with an extensive background as a leader, volunteer, and a founder of many charitable organizations. His firm, Quiet Legacy Planning Group, specializes in working with individuals who wish to incorporate their personal value system into their financial planning experience. Ryan is a past president of the Estate Planner Council of London and a past chair of the Canadian Association of Gift Planners. London Roundtable. He was founding president of the Secrets of Radar Museum and has served extensively in leadership positions on boards and committees of numerous non-for-profit organizations, including Brain Tumor Foundation of Canada, London Heritage Council, Trillium Plus Music and Letters, and many others. Ryan's extensive commitment to the not-for-profit sector has also been recognized by the province of Ontario, which awarded him in the Ontario Volunteer Service Award in both 2009 and 2015. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Pavel. Uh, Ryan, I'm really excited to have you uh, today. So let's, uh, let's get it started. So let's start with your firm. So tell me a little bit more about your firm in your own words. So what do you do and who do you serve? <laughs> well, the firm's called
1: Quiet Legacy, so I can't tell you anything. Um, yeah, that's, my, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my first response. It would be a short interview. Yeah, it would make a very short interview. But we called it Quiet Legacy for a very specific reason. I realized a number of years ago, before I had the firm, when I was in management for a number of financial services companies that the type of client that I worked really, really well with was generally the, the millionaire next door client. And they were people who were extremely generous, who, because of my background, came to work with me because of my expertise in the charitable sector. And these are the sorts of people that from a charitable perspective, I like to say they're the sort of people who want to keep the lights on, not the people who want their name in lights. And so after a lengthy career in management, when I decided in uh, 2016 to spin off my own firm, we named it Quiet Legacy, recognizing that that was the common thread, that was the tribe of, of clients that we worked really well with. So today we service people who fit that mold. We spend about 70% of our time working with them and we spend about 30% of our time actually working with charities on receiving gifts from those types of individuals and doing a variety of consulting services, everything from talks for their donors on the topic of plan giving, strategic giving, we're calling it more and more, estate giving, as well as doing things like life insurance audits for charitably owned life insurance and some workshops for fundraisers uh, in this area to, to help them out. Excellent, And it's a really fun practice, I have to say, and everyone that we deal with are just sweet, wonderful, kind human
0: beings. Wonderful. Okay, we'll come back to that. 70-30% working with individuals and and charities. That's interesting. In terms of the, just for the context for the listeners, uh, how is your firm structured? If you can tell me a little bit more about the licensing, MFDA, IROC, a number of staff clients, maybe a UM, how do you basically, you know, uh, if you could describe your practice, that would be great.
1: So at the moment, I'm the only licensed advisor in the practice that's dealing uh, on the investment and insurance side. We're an MFDA shop. Our hope is our dealer will start opening up into the IROC world. But uh, uh, part of the model that I have is to what 's the word I guess not not offload but contract in people. In, in the areas that we have, we like to remain small and nimble. So we have a security specialist who's cross-employed by our MFDA dealer as well as an IROC dealer who handles situations where we have clients who have stock holdings that need to come over in an information sharing agreement in between. So we'll work with uh, him in that case. And then on the the staffing side, uh, we have our wonderful operations director, Sarah, who handles a lot of our back-end admin, but also specifically that role is in such a way to uh, really reach out and market within the charitable sector and part of her role is to have the charitable expertise, and we're getting her up to speed now in the last couple of years on the charitable sector, so the hope and the goal will be that her knowledge and understanding of the charitable sector will be as good as my own in a couple of years. Additionally, we have Linda, who does a lot of our charitable workshops with us. Linda formerly was a community relations manager for one of the large financial institutions in the country, so all the charities know her, which is great because when they wanted money, they would go to that institution and she would be the gatekeeper. And uh, the second she retired, I said, boy, do I have a job for you. And one of the great joys of working with her, she's got her own consultancy practice and she's discovered in retirement that she um, really enjoys retirement, uh, but misses aspects of her old life. So we've got this beautiful arrangement with her that allows us to bring her in when needed. She's a blast working with us. We have a blast working with her. So she's basically an outside consultant uh, that works really closely with us. And then we have another business partner that from time, to time we do workshops with uh, who comes from a storytelling background. And we haven't done as much work with her in the last year or two because she's been working on a fairly large project uh, for another organization. But we work closely together if we're doing workshops for charitable organizations. So it's interesting on the advisory side, we're quite lean on that front. On the charitable side, we're quite broad, which is interesting because if you look at the associated revenue flows, you would think that it would be the other way around. But we find that the work that we do in the charitable sector is a huge draw for us for getting the right type of target clientele. To have that profile in the community is is what drives the economic engine of
0: of the company. Okay, makes sense. Right, so... uh You mentioned uh, well. I mentioned it actually in your introduction that you're working with uh, mostly working with people who uh, wish to incorporate their personal value system into their financial planning uh, process. And so, tell me a little bit more. Is this like who are those people? They're probably not 25 years old. Well, maybe. Uh, But yeah, tell me a little bit more demographic information about them, not just uh, you know the, the psychographic side.
1: Well, it's interesting because you use the term demographic, and historically in our industry, demographics are how we look at clients. And I realized a number of years ago, thanks to the absolutely wonderful uh, show on CBC called Under the Influence, uh, hosted by Terry O'Reilly. He had a wonderful episode on tribal marketing. And in one of those aha moments, I was driving around my lawn tractor at home listening to his podcast and I went, oh my goodness, that's how we operate. And I'd never been able to find it before. So the tribe that we work with, are people for whom charity, philanthropy, community involvement, engagement, volunteering, things like that are a major factor to their lives, but also of major importance to their financial and estate plans. And what's interesting is we find that we tend to have two clusters, if you want to look at the demographics of that group. So we tend to have, I'll call it the 60 plus crowd, Mm -hmm. who have acquired assets if you've read the book, The Millionaire Next Door, uh, I think it was by Stanley and Deco. Um, Great book. If any advisor's not read it, they should. If any fundraiser's not read it, they must. And those are the people that spent less than they earned, suddenly found themselves later in life with a fair number of resources, but lived very modest lifestyles. The flip side of that is we have a large contingent of our practice who I would say are in their late 30s to early 40s, who are active professionals who've come from a generation in which the welfare and health of the world around them, be that environmental or social, is of huge importance. And actually, some of our largest clients fall within that demographic, which is really interesting. So you would think that those two groups have very little in common. And yet, when you look at the underlying thread, their approach to community in the world around them is a key piece of it. And for that group, who is you know hovering five years, let's say either side of forty, they have a really hard time in the traditional financial world finding anyone who's willing to talk about that, and incorporate that right from the get go. Mm -hmm. And it's really fascinating because they're not really in the plan giving demographic for charities either, so it's not on their radar. And yet we find through referral that's actually one of our greatest growing client groups. But my forty-year-old physician for whom social welfare and environmental welfare is the number one aspect of any of our financial planning discussions, has more with our 78-year-old widowed client in common Mm -hmm. for whom her her faith background is driving a lot of her interest in this area than they do with people in their own age demographics. And I've always found that fascinating. So I like to say we don't have a demographic, we have a tribe, and we know who that tribe is really well. Of course, the challenge is our tribe is a quiet tribe. And so finding those people is actually the hardest part of our job. And so that's why we've structured the firm the way we do, because by working with charities, we tend to come in contact with that kind of person because that's a natural gravitation spot. And that's what feeds the, the growth of the practice.
0: I love that specialization. I, I think it probably stems deeply from, you know, why you started this business. So let's talk a little bit about that just personally for you. Why does this business exist? It's, a, you know, you decided you've, you had a number of executive positions in the past and you, like, you could probably continue with your corporate career. Yet you decided, no, I want to start something on my own. So tell me, why does this business exist? Why personally to you does this work matter?
1: My wife would tell you it's because I have to reinvent myself every seven to 10 years. So I have the world's most bizarre resume, like many people in our industry. And, you know, I started my my first career was as a professional musician and a university prof. And I toured up and down the eastern seaboard. I was a classical saxophonist. I was the guy who came in as soloist with orchestra and one of the nice things in the classical world is saxophone attracted a lot of people, but it was also a heck of a sales job because nobody could envision a saxophone soloist with orchestra. But as soon as somebody put it on their playbill, they sold out the house. And it was a lot of fun. it was a great career to have in my twenties. And here in Ontario, it was the Mike Harris years and my wife is a primary school teacher. I was a university prof and a touring musician. And if you wanted like the three strikes your out rule with that particular government at the time, we were everything negated. And so I like to joke that I went into portfolio diversification in the household and went, we can't have every aspect of work that we do, be it the whim of a government that was doing a lot of slashing and cutting in those areas. Um, also, I'd been on the road a lot as a musician and... I had seen the toll that that took on families, and I happened to really love my wife. We wanted to have kids, and I remember sitting at a bar after a show with a bass player, and he was talking to me about his $300,000 in debt that the bank keep extending because they knew we couldn't pay it back, his six kids who barely talked to him, and his three ex-wives, and you had one of those moments where you flash forward, and that could be me in 40 years, and I'm not sure I like where this is going. (laughs) Combined with all those factors, plus the fact that I figured I might have murdered someone if I stayed in on the academic side, because I was far too business-oriented for, for the ivory tower. And I, at the time, I was halfway through a PhD in looking at cognitive psychology and how we learn to read music versus learning to read text. So it was an interesting time. So... As you can judge just by that aspect of my background, I have very broad interests and have always had them. Gives me some insight. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just to give some insight. And one of the things is I had always been self-managed. I loved the financial planning world. And this was one of the few industries that one could transition. If, if you're part of my metaphor here, with the ivory tower so far up my rear end, it was very difficult on the job front, especially with an arts you know, background and almost done a, essentially a PhD in the arts. It would have been very challenging to move pretty much anywhere. But of course, the joy of the financial world is that diverse background is actually a huge asset. And so in 2002, I ended up signing on with Clerica, which now of course was, was bought out shortly after I joined uh, by Sun Life. Started as an advisor there, had a great start. One of my favorite moments of all time is there was a senior advisor in the first couple of weeks And I had gotten off to a great start. I broke a bunch of their sales records and and this advisor pulled me aside. He said, look, I want to give you some advice because you've got some potential. He said, I've learned two things in my career. He goes, whatever you do, don't do business with university profs and teachers. And I looked at him. I said, well, why? He says, well, they never answer your phone uh, phone calls. They need way too much information. They think they know everything. And I just kind of nodded and they said, so where did you get all your first sales from? And I said, well, they were all university profs and teachers. (laughs) And he was floored and his jaw hit the ground. And he said, how the hell did you do that? And I said, well, I understood that group because that was the background that I came from. And I knew, for example, that, you know, most of the industry sales campaigns were in the fall. Well, I'm married to a primary school teacher. When is report card season, I don't get to talk to her. I don't get to kiss her. I don't get to touch her. I don't even, I'm not even sure we exist in the same universe in that time period. But of course he was picking up the phone in his big sales campaign in the fall, right at report card season. Well, of course, no university profs or teachers would return your call because they're not even talking to their spouses. And if they are, it's not a pleasant talk because that consumes their world. And I knew that. So I knew the right times, so I used to drive my sales management people nuts because all my sales were in the summer and at Christmas time because that was my original market, but I also knew that those people were really analytical, and so you couldn't force a sale. You couldn't rush a sale. You had to be patient, and I think that's one of the things that really appealed to me in financial planning that there's sort of a long runway approach in financial planning versus the short runway approach of a sales position, And right from the get-go, for me, the planning part was the key thing. And so for that market that was really analytical, it was important to do the planning and show those people all of that stuff. And at the same time this was happening, my wife and I were newly married, and there was a gentleman uh, that we had met in the apartment building that we were in who had been involved in radar during the Second World War. And his name was Fred Bates, and he was one of the bigger characters you'd ever meet in your life, even though he was uh, probably all of five foot one, hunched over with osteoporosis and bad hips. And we used to call him Yoda because he had a walker the same color of Yoda, and he had the big tufty ears. And man, you didn't mess with Fred, but he got me involved in founding a place called the Secrets Radar Museum. So we had 6,000 Canadians drawn from every walk of life, a project more secret than the search for the atomic bomb. And they couldn't talk about it until 1991. So Fred got six of us together, and we formed a museum and we filed their charitable registration papers ready for this September 10th, 2001. So think of the next day. Yes. So this is all in the midst of me doing this career transition and writing my licensing exams. And we went and created bloody charity the day before 9-11. And, you know, talk about trial by fire. We had a really amazing experience putting that place together. But of course, it was very difficult to get charitable status, starting with 9-11, because they were looking at things a lot more closely. And because we're talking about military history, I think it was a more sensitive topic than, than others. So... You know, we had this incredible experience starting a museum from scratch, looking at this incredible piece of history. And the vets, of course, were in a rush to get things up and going. So at the same time I transitioned in the financial planning world, I also transitioned into the charitable world at the same time in this really amazing place of being the founding chair of a brand new organization being formed in the midst of 9-11 and working with these World War II vets with this amazing story that nobody knew about. And you know those were two really formative things in my life happening at the same time. I would work all week on the new role, and then I would spend all weekend in the museum because at the time we didn't have the budget for hiring a professional curator. So there was ten or twelve of us who all volunteered at bits and pieces of what we needed, and we got the place up and going, had the doors open by 2003, and brought it from a $6,000 a year budget to a $75,000 year budget with full-time staff member, government support things along those lines. And so from that moment forward, I lived with one foot in the charitable world and one foot in the financial planning world. So I like to joke, I'm two for-profit for nonprofits, two nonprofit for for-profits, and everybody hated me. But it gave me this amazing insight into the kind of work that we do now that all stems back to there. So even if you looked at my resume, and went, how the heck did you end up doing this? You know, if you lived the life that I did, it all made perfect sense because I had one foot in each world kind of the whole way through in both of those natures of what i started happened at that time and i was very fortunate early on in the museum days having been a brand new advisor that a colleague of mine who does a lot of sri work happened to bring one of his clients through the museum when it just opened and he said to me he goes do you know about canadian association of gift planners i said no what's that he said well i think you should join because this sounds like something would be up your alley and he was chair here in london at the time and that changed my life. Uh, CAGP, if you have any charitable bent as an advisor, a place to go. It's an organization for CFPs, accountants, lawyers, and charity to come together and make sure the plan gives happen the right way for the right reasons and execute properly. And that is the most amazing professional group I've ever joined, the most amazing people I've met in my life, and the most sharing, caring place I've ever been. The national conference is almost Disney-like in this magical way that you can sit down at a table with people you've never met before and strike up these great conversations and friendships. And it's really hard to describe to you, other than it sounds like some kind of weird cult as I'm doing this, uh, how important that organization has been to our practice uh, to my viewpoint, um, but also more importantly, it's a bat phone I can pick up to any of the other 1,200 members across the country and say, "I've got this scenario. Would you mind, you know, giving me a few minutes on the phone to help me walk through it?" And so, a lot of what we do now is thanks to the knowledge, the expertise, and the sharing from Canadian Association of Git Planners.
0: That's fantastic! Wow. So, I'd like to have some of those links as well, linked up in an episode because I'm sure there will be a number of listeners interested in those. Uh, so, okay. So, it's clear to me. Well, after you explained, it's clear to me how you are where you are today and of course great ideas typically sort of happen at the intersection of different disciplines so I think you're just as you're transitioning from one discipline to the other then those amazing opportunities came about and you were able to uh, then create a business around it. So tell me let's focus a little bit more about your process right now of course you have a certain lens and we are all very clear on, on what that lens is. but you know how do you approach financial planning? Clients? how do you approach the wealth management aspects how, how, what is your process is this different you know very different or, or is this uh, is charitable giving just part of it as you know one of the uh, one of the points or this is sort of a wrapper around everything what you're doing tell me a little bit more how you're approaching it I
1: would say for any newer clients it's a wrapper around everything we do have some existing clients who came through various methods that are not necessarily as on profile as newer people would be where we go through a more traditional Financial planning process, but one of the things that we started doing a few years ago, we put aside any discussion of numbers other than you know a fairly high level understanding of what assets are in play because we do try to screen the clients that we're working with. Uh, generally, we want to see a household minimum of about two hundred and fifty in assets, or one hundred and fifty in the case of a single individual. Just to make sure that for the kind of level of detail that we're doing, that we're getting the right right kind of client. Uh, Also with our overhead costs, you know, advisors who aren't looking at what their cost to service a client is will be advisors who are out of a practice pretty quickly. 15 years in management showed me that one quite nicely. But generally now when we work with people, there's a wonderful set of tools from an organization called 2164. That was developed through the the Charles Brompton Foundation, uh, which was designed for ultra high net worth families to have a discussion between the 64 year olds and the 21 year olds about wealth. There you go. So that when people come into large sums of money, they don't end up like certain, say, examples that I could give you, like, say, the Paris Hilton's of the world that maybe life choices with large sums of money may not be what the parents or grandparents would envision. But I have found those tools work really well with The Quiet Millionaire Next Door because nobody's having discussions with them. So we use a number of their materials. My favorite ones, there's an exercise called Picture Your Legacy, and it's a stack of about 50 different, very generic photographs in which we ask the client to go through them and choose two, no more than three, that really speak to them what they see their legacy being and whatever that means to them. And so we have these really deep discussions right off the beginning of that. There's a similar deck of cards with about 50 different personal values. We have people sort through, again, two, no more than three. As our colleague Linda likes to say in the charitable world, they're all great causes, but you can't support all of them. So the value deck is I tell people that line and say, they're all wonderful and you want them all. But if you really had to choose, you know, what are those core values that if somebody stepped on them or stepped through them that would just violate you deep in your inner soul? And usually people will come up with you know, two, no more than three that really speak to them. And so before we have the numbers conversation, we've had some really deep conversations about what are the motivating factors in their lives and what are the things in their past that led these values to be really, really strong for them. And it's probably the greatest set of tools that I've ever seen. I'm also a big fan of uh, Scott Fithian wrote a book called Values-Based Financial Planning that some advisors may be familiar with. A legacy group of companies out of, uh, I want to say, Boston or Baltimore. Now Chris Ben uh, does a lot of work up here in Canada with them. You know, they've got some great materials as well. But that book for me was a huge eye-opener in, in how to have conversations and discuss uh, with people the value and the importance of having that value discussion. So I use a lot of the stuff from that book in our practice as well. So we have a really good handle on who someone is before we start having the other conversations. And the importance of that, I, I can't overstate as a planner, as an industry, we really forget that that step is the most vital. If you can't connect with someone on a person-to-person relationship, you have no connection at all as a professional. And finding out those core values, making those connections are really important. The best example I can give, one of our largest clients, it was an inherited wealth situation. Um, They'd done very well for themselves. They'd done some good planning work. They'd inherited a large sum of money, about $2 million. And when we started working with them, we were doing an hourly fee-for-service planning scenario with no commitment from them about whether we would take over the assets, Mm-hmm. And what was probably one of the greatest feel-good moments of my life, despite the sad situation that led to the inheritance. As we were doing the planning work, this this person was very fee and cost sensitive. So they they kind of done, I'll call it the wealth simple thing, you know, low, low cost at any cost, if that makes sense. You know, fees are evil. I don't want to pay money for anything. And so suddenly, you know, taking someone who had a reasonable amount of personal net worth, maybe say in the half million dollar mark, for the stage that they were in their mid forties to suddenly jump to being worth two to 3 million through inheritance. That's a, that's a big jump. And they knew that they weren't ready to handle that on their own, even though they'd done a very good job of getting to where they were on their own, but they kept saying, Oh, I'm not going to pay more than this. I'm not going to pay more than this. And, you know, we went through that planning process. And one of the things that came out is their existing portfolio. And one of the things they never looked at is they lived their life with a certain set of core values. And one of those values was environment to the point where they and their partner washed out their Ziploc bags to reuse them. Okay. (laughs) Now, that's, that's pretty hardcore environmentalist. And it's unusual to see someone, you know, in my own age group, I'm in my mid forties doing that. I have a lot of depression era clients who did that as a cost savings measure, but this was really environmental. And as we talked, you know, this is someone who donated to Nature Conservancy, who donated to World Wildlife Fund, for whom animal welfare was, was a huge deal. And do you know, when we did the portfolio analysis, they were 37% in the oil sands. Now, in that discussion, you know, one of the things that kept coming up, and, and rightly or wrongly, because we worked with a number of people who came from the oil and gas sector, and I'm not going to get into the ethics of it, but, you know, her perception of the oil sands and how she spoke about the things she donated to is very much she despised them. And yet she had no idea that her existing portfolio, almost 40% of it, was in the oil sands. And there was this great moment where she went, oh, my God, I've been prioritizing returns over everything that's important to me. And she picked up the phone and on the spot fired the kind of well, simple like people that she was working with (laughs) up until that point and said, "Okay, all the assets are coming over to you. Because we had said, well, if you believe that, then, you know, here's some options in the SRI space where environment is looked really strongly at. They're decarbonizing, That the, you know, they'll only be in the oil and gas companies that have strong environmental records. If anywhere globally, we've got none. And so we worked really well uh, with the wholesaler at that organization to structure a portfolio that minimized the impact. And we went from, you know, 37% in the oil sands to less than 7% exposure to the energy sector and that seven percent is the best of the best in terms of alternative energies you know natural gas and state of oil and, and things along those lines and you know we've never had a more loyal happy client but no one had ever had that discussion with her and yet because we started that discussion on the value system that came out in the first 10 seconds mm-hmm. then it was an entirely different financial planning discussion And what's amazing with her and with another client that we have who's very similar, he's a uh, trauma physician, his, I'll never forget that that SRI company gave us some really great reporting on, you know, for every $110,000 you had with them compared to a standard portfolio in Canada was the equivalent of taking two cars off the road in terms of carbon output. And I remember sending him that just as a little nice aside. And he goes, thank you. In 20 years, he goes, that is the most important and useful information on my financial portfolio that anyone has ever sent to me. (laughs) Wow. You know, because he, he's a guy, he doesn't care, like he wants a good return, but his life is all about saving people. And part of that for him is the environment's tied in really closely to, he sees them as one and the same because of the nature of his work. And he sees that as a long-term health threat. And because we, we knew that, we emphasize that in his portfolio. And I, I remember being stunned because as a financial planner, the thought that the most important thing to a client wasn't the return is not something our industry ever contemplates. And yet for him, the fact that his portfolio was the equivalent, you know, at that point in time, of taking six or eight cars off the road, that to him was intrinsically more valuable than whether he eked out, you know, 6% versus 8%. And that the irony for both these individuals, when we have looked at their rate of return in their portfolio, they're the same or higher than the average uh, portfolio. And I'm starting to believe that's because in the SRI space, the extra screening that goes on ensures that you screen out some of the surprises that happen. You know, will call them the Volkswagen debacles and, and things like that. You've got a less of a likelihood that those things will come into blue and, and really drop the value in the portfolio. So I think that, you know, we used to think in the SRI space, people were giving up return, now, I think there's some reasonably good evidence in the last 10 years that it's the exact opposite, that the SRI space is doing a better job at return because of the extra screening that's going on. It's taking out some of the downside risk. Can't say that's going to hold true forever, but I think in the last 10 years, there's been some pretty good statistical evidence of that.
0: Which makes sense because additional screening, additional transparency that brings up you know some issues that need to be you know, fixed within those different companies, right? And In order to, for, them, for them to meet certain criteria, I mean, of course, the best of the best will stay there so, so yeah. that's uh, that's interesting and I think there's uh, I mean this is just a surface comment of course but I think there's probably deeper deeper aspect of it okay this is really interesting so I think your point about making sure that you really connect on a personal level very strongly with your clients and talk about values initially, I mean, that's, if you don't do that, then of course, I mean, that can derail completely your process. If you do this well, and you work with the right client, then of course, everything sort of becomes easy, right? Because you really help them identify the things that are most important for them, and you really are the enabler for them to actually make it happen. So tell me about the work. So how do you work with, you mentioned that you, about 30% of your work is also with charity. So, you know, what is the process of, you know, how do you approach, for example, you know, the values, which is basically, you know, it's important for me to be environmentally friendly with returns, and for example, with leveraging or using tax uh, regulations as part of estate planning, right? For, so, for example, when we can look at some tax savings, uh, just look at, looking at the numbers, how do you sort of make sure that you balance all, all those aspects together? <laughs>
1: it's probably the trickiest part of the job. And, and one of the reasons for it is that, in general, our financial planning tools in the industry only look at Projected returns. So, if you're looking at charitable strategies, that's bloody hard to model in financial planning software. You know, I'm working on a case right now, and I I won't say given the nature of the podcast what the software is, but it's not yours, Mm -hmm. where one of the things that's happening is 100% of the estate is going to charity. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's no way in that planning software that I can indicate that the entire residual state is going to charity. So of course that throws off all of our state calculations and I have to go back through and calculate those manually, which is not an easy task if you're looking at different points in a person's life, you know, whether they go 70, 75, 80, or you know, 90, something like that. Then I have to go back in and manually calculate. So there's a lot of extra work that goes in there. There's also things like donations of publicly traded securities where there's a 100% capital gains waiver. That's mm-hmm. very difficult for financial planning software to model. And yet, that is by far and away, in my opinion, for the average Canadian, the most effective tax planning strategy that there is for charitable donations, it's becoming a bigger and bigger option for donors. You know, we have we have the most generous charitable regime in the world, and yet I can only do the most basic of modeling, and that's that's true of just about every piece of planning software, because it is a complicated space, and you need a certain amount of expertise, and um, and there's some tricky rules involved. That said. We are able to generally balance that out. And I find I have to live inside a plan. You know, the the data entry, the the getting that stuff in, you can play with some numbers, but it doesn't give you the whole background because there are a lot of moving parts and times change and rules change, particularly in the charitable space. So a lot of this has to do with the psychology of it. And I know you interviewed my colleague Adam a a few, few podcasts ago, and he and I have had many, many conversations about the importance of psychology and planning. And you know, I figure at least half the planning experience is understanding the psychology of the donor or the client. We use them very interchangeably in our practice. And it's a lot easier to put things together. If you've had that values conversation, you understand for some people donating in their lifetime is a big priority. For some people it's donating from their state for, for some people it's about tax planning only, but we don't usually deal with those people because if you're just worried about tax planning, the whole concept of charitable giving is that you give something up. So unless you're involved in one of the giftings, scams where you end up ahead of the game. You're doing something wrong in most cases uh, if you're not sacrificing something. But what we find is a lot of our planning work is around the soft side, which is giving you strategies to think about how, when, and why you're going to donate. How do you evaluate the organizations that you're going to donate to? You know, And the planning work behind that justifies, but the psychology of it is, is what drives people to give. And if we've learned anything, you know, I love the example, one of our clients makes $130,000 a year. They live on 25 of that. And they give away over $30,000 a year and they're coming up to retirement and they're not comfortable retiring unless they can maintain giving $30,000 a year. Wow. It's crazy, right? And if you saw the lifestyle that they live, they don't even have a car and that's okay. That's just not a priority for them, you know, and they're worth a couple million dollars. Mm-hmm. And in fact, of the 30,000 they give, I'd say about 10 of it is actually to things where they don't get a charitable receipt for. Mm-hmm. And that level of generosity, while it's rare in our society, there are those people out there and we just love working with them because... Again, money money is a tool to them and they need enough of it to live their, their life. And again, we called it quiet legacy because they're not flashy people. They, mm-hmm. This person could have a million dollar home. They're perfectly content in their, you know, one and a half bedroom condo because that's all they need. That's all their, their measure of life is not by how much stuff they have, it's by experience. So for them, you know, if they do spend more money, it's on travel. So it's just, it's, it's such a different market to be in with this group. And mm-hmm. it's a really underserviced market because the market tends not to have a lot of personal involvement in money because it's not what drives them. Right. They are very good chronic savers, and they're very concerned about running out of money. Mm-hmm. as As one example, uh, clients that we just did some planning work for, we needed to convince them that instead of giving five thousand dollars a year, which is fairly generous, you know they're pensioners, their family income is is around, I think, eighty grand. But they can actually afford to give away $25,000 a year without batting an eye. And they have no kids, Mm -hmm. which is common with a lot of people we work with because no kids, where does your estate go? Well, you tend to think charities, they tend to come to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything's going to charity anyway. So why not start giving away more of it now? And Mm -hmm. for most financial advisors, you know, that's where the fingers would come up like a cross, uh, wording off the vampire. Wait a minute, you're telling people to give away money. But for us, it's become this badge of honor that at this point, you know, with the plan I'm currently working on this week, we will probably be in the vicinity of 27 to $28 million that we've been involved in giving away in the last five, six years. Wonderful. A really cool metric to do. So, you know, if I went out and, you know, volunteered as a fundraiser for some of the causes that are important to me around the city, I don't think I'd been able to convince people to part with that kind of money. Yet doing planning work, I get paid to do it and we work with these lovely people and like that's a lot of money that's flown back into some really amazing places around here.
0: That's a lot of impact. So so you mentioned a lot of things, all the way from financial planning software to psychology to how clients compensate you for your services. So so that's interesting, right? Because you also by choosing certain way of being compensated for your work, you sort of can either create or eliminate certain conflicts of interest between your clients and, and yourself, of course. So typically, is most of your work right now fee for service when when you basically work with clients, or or most you know what is the ratio between let's say assets under management or fee for service or any other work, for example, insurance? Yeah. Now that that can vary widely
1: for a couple of reasons. So first of all, most of the investment income that we have is e-based or for smaller accounts and holdings uh, on a no-load basis, no-load zero. So we live, we live on trailers. And what's interesting there is that's how we model our expense structure. So the expenses of the firm are basically paid by the trailers on AUM. We have other mainly insurance product scenarios that give us the lump sum stuff and that can vary widely from from year to year. We've seen as much of a swing of say fifty or hundred thousand dollars from one year to the next, because sometimes we end up working in a jumbo, you know, insurance market. Those are nice cases in that they can bring a lot of revenue in, um, but repeatability from one year to the next can really vary. On the insurance side, we find with this group, we do a lot of premiums that would be, say, in the eight dollars to $15,000 year range. A lot of it's estate planning related, mm-hmm. where we're running the numbers on taxation and using insurance either as a charitable gift or to provide some liquidity to the estate because maybe we've given away money or there's kids in the picture and this is just a faster way to to get it out of the estate. So that that can really vary. But I would say on the whole, what's interesting in the last few years, a higher and higher percentage of what we do is coming from fee-for-service plans. And What we've done is we've said to people, if you want to work with us on a fee-for-service basis, then we will charge you at an hourly rate. We give you an estimate ahead of time of how many hours we think that will take based on the complexity of the scenario. We've got a spreadsheet that helps calculate, and we're usually within about an hour either side of our estimate. If we go over by more than, say, 25% of our estimate, then that's on our dime and not yours. So that, we found, really helped people be comfortable going. This isn't just an endless open money grab that's going on, so they know that there's a high end, but we only charge for the actual hours done. So that combined with a lot of our charity work is also either on a flat fee basis or or an hourly basis when we're doing consulting to them on on receiving these kinds of gifts. I would say now we're probably about 20 to 25% of annual revenue is coming from that kind of combination from charities and, and financial plans that AUM is about half the remaining revenue and that insurance, annuity, that kind of business is, is about half again. So again, it varies from year to year, but we we've always looked at the AUM as are covering all of our overhead. And then basically my income comes from the insurance and the fee-based work. But one of the big things that we've tried to do is maximize the recurring revenue for practice. So after 15 years in management, working with advisors, you got to see that people who were used to getting lump sums were always on the hamster wheel. So, you know, DSC practices or LSC practices would give you a lot of revenue, but then you're always scrambling to replace that revenue. And, you know, 2008 really made that hard for a lot of people. And of course, the industry is moving away from, from DSCs and, and LSCs. So we knew that going down the pipe, that I was going to be there. And uh, conceptually, I've always been uncomfortable locking in a client to working with us. Part of what makes us work really well in the referability is the trust factor that if you don't like us, you can leave. And we don't want anyone to, to walk away unhappy. So we try really hard not to have them leave. But if we can maintain them, then the money that we make on those accounts is way higher. And frankly, the cost of freeing up 10% free and things like that, if you look at the return on effort; you, you just end up on the hamster wheel. So we really feel here that we're prepared to have the long runway. I'd rather have you as a client for a decade and higher higher payment over that decade than get a lump sum in first year and you know lower income to to service you. Because I saw a lot of advisor practices when I was in management. That did not understand what the annual cost of maintaining a client was. That's a huge factor, and depending on the distance, geographic distance of the client, that number changes. Depending on the servicing needs, that number changes, and everybody's a little different. But if you don't know what that number is for a client, you don't know who are the right clients for you. to pay.
0: Okay, so let's have a safe question here. Maybe we'll go a little rabbit hole. But you know, so so let's talk about how you know what are the biggest factors in that uh, you need to take into account in terms of uh, calculating the cost of service of uh, servicing client. How would you sort of you know a breakdown of those different factors so first
1: of all it's really important to understand how much service that client requires and everybody's different and it's not based on their AUM so we have some clients that have large AUM and they want how should I phrase this this is the wrong phrasing but they want very little to do with us mm-hmm. we have a very strong trust relationship they know we'll reach out when needed but they don't want us in their face all the time because they don't like to think about their money they just want to know it's safe it's doing what it's supposed to do and we're on track for the plan great There's not a high need to service that person. We have other people, say, for example, a business owner, where we need to have lots and lots of discussions because there's a lot of complexity and moving parts in in what they're doing. You know, that person is a much higher servicing cost because maybe we need to be talking to them every month or two because their business is in rapid growth or they're changing or, you know, one client we're working with right now, there's a lot of transition going on in the partnership in their firm. And, you know, the plan has changed three or four times over the course of the last two years as they have come in as the majority partner. Originally, they were going to own 100%. Now they don't want to do that. So now there's a lot of changing that we have to do in our plans. Geography is a big one. So we we're based in London, but a lot of our clients would be in the KW Cambridge area, Toronto and Ottawa. So if we take on a new Ottawa client, there needs to be sufficient revenue there to justify the fact that we've got to generally fly out. We'll need to spend a few days. We can't get out there on a regular basis as much. So if that client is good working virtually, great. If they need to see us every couple of months, well, the cost to do that is really quite high. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're working on a client right now that we're getting because their advisor is based up of Manitoba and doesn't want to fly here the four times a year they want to see him. It's a big account. Mm-hmm. You know, their their assets are in the multi-millions. And, you know, I'd be happy to fly for the trailers on that full account. <laughs> Um, but their advisor isn't because you know they're in a certain marketplace and they don't want to mm-hmm. fly out to Ontario just to see these clients. So again, those are the sorts of things that you have to look at and We try and track what the average cost per client is, just to know if we're at the right number of clients. And I'm a firm believer, the the less clients you have, the better. Again, many years in management, I saw people with 12 and 1,500 clients in their their book of business. And they usually, the advisors were losing their sanity and the admin staff was miserable. So we try to keep it down. I think we're around about 200. And there's some of those that will start pairing off to to better fits for, for the client. But ideally, I think the ratio of licensed individual to uh, client book is probably in that 150 to 200 client range or smaller. Again, depending on the marketplaces that, that you're in. So we're keeping an eye on that. But, you know, the other, the other piece of it too is, how pleasant is it to deal with that client? And 15 years in management, I, I like to joke that I got to see, I'm going to use the PG term here, um, not the one you're all going to think in your heads, but you know, <laughs> I got to see a lot of jerks because the jerks were always escalated to management or sometimes you worked with the jerks or you know, things along those lines. And really, I like to joke, my, my underlying business plan is I don't want to deal with jerks. Again, substitute your word of choice there. and But I can't put that on my business card. Compliance doesn't like it. So that's why we (laughs) put charitable people because they're lovely human beings. But I can't tell you what a joy it is to show up to work every day knowing that you have a practice filled with just lovely human beings. And that's really important because when we hire staff, we need to hire staff who can relate to and be lovely human beings. And we can't take staff who are just okay human beings, if that makes sense. When your client base are the cream of the crop in terms of kind and warm and generous, you can't have staff who are below that threshold. Makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, it's huge. And people don't, people don't understand. I would rather hire a staff member whose technical skills or admin skills or other on-the-job skills are lower than a candidate who doesn't have the ability to connect with our clients. And we're so fortunate in that the people that we work with are all exceptional human beings. And one of the great joys is, I get calls from clients all the time saying, so, oh, I just interacted with so-and-so. And I just want to tell you, it was such a lovely experience. And like those are the calls as a business owner you love because those clients will never go anywhere because if they go somewhere else, they're going to lose that relationship. And all the people that we work with are those kinds of people and they're hard to find and they're hard to hire. But man, once you've done it, what a what a benefit to the practice, what a huge ROI that is.
0: I totally understand what you're saying. We have uh, Lee Martinson, she's our customer success manager, and there has been weeks and there are weeks that I will receive an email or phone calls for example, saying, this is wonderful, this is fantastic. And I had a fantastic supporter experience, or, or somebody showed me the software and showed me that you know, how I can accomplish certain things. So I can totally understand what you're talking about, and I think. But I think let's spend a little bit more time underlying that because when people, for example, think about building a business, here's a product, here's a service. The product or the service is not just just the service, right? It's everything. It's basically everything what you're doing with your practice. Earlier, we, we, yes, we, we were we we're talking with Adam Chapman about, for example, how he's optimized, specializing in the retirement pre-retirement segment, and diving deep into the psychology and why the transition around, for example, being not well working and being retired, why this transition for those couple of years is psychologically difficult and why he spends time to understand that. You're doing, again, you're, you're just not thinking about you know what you want to, how you want to basically you know, come to work and work with your clients. You're thinking about how do you structure your stuff? I mean, who do you hire really is defined by who do you work with, right? So you optimize for the client. Well, there's so many wonderful aspects here, and so we could probably be talking a little bit more about that. But I want to be respectful regarding your time. So there's a couple of questions. I want to ask one question specifically about about financial planning and, and charitable giving. What do you think is the most misunderstood when it comes to, especially charitable giving? What people who I'm sure there are a lot of wonderful people who haven't exposed themselves or haven't been in the space of of uh, actually thinking about you know charitable donations because you know there's I I know at least there's some ratios for example you know some charitable organizations they don't have the best track record you know how much of my money actually goes into helping people versus overhead and so on so you know is there anything that you can help us understand about you know what are some some of the things that are misunderstood about this space
1: so I've got I've got two pet peeves that I want to make sure every advisor listening to this is aware. So first of all, for all of your Canadian advisors, Mm -hmm. it is so much better for people to donate publicly traded securities with the capital gain in kind to charity than it is for them to give cash. And I've seen accountants not know that. I've seen CFPs not know that. The museum that I helped found, there was a lady who talked about how great her advisor was. She had a whole bunch of demutualized Canada life shares. And she would. I said to her, you should give them to us in kind because you'll save a crud load on tax. And her advisor said, oh, it doesn't make a difference here. Just sell them and give them the cash. And that's what she did. And then she'd wax about a great advisor. And I was dying inside because it was too late. Every advisor should know that. There's no excuse not to know it. It is the most effective way to donate in this country. I'm sure there are equivalents for some of your listeners who might be out of country, but know what some of those rules are because they can make a huge difference for your client. And your client will adore you for giving you... Even better savings, it just means sometimes we have to do more work and advisors as a whole, I find we tend not to want to do that extra work, but it does make a difference. The second thing you you touched on in your comments about expense ratios for charities, and that's always a big issue because it's it's very public, it hits the news. So there are a couple things that you can do with your client where this becomes uh, an issue that's been raised. First of all, is to understand that the the going figure that seems to float out there is that a charity is good if it spends less than 25% of its fundraise dollars on admin. I don't know where that number came from. It's not necessarily accurate, but let me put that in terms that advisors can really appreciate. So. So one of my favorite books is called Practice Made Perfect. And every advisor should read it because it talks about different structures for your practice, the cost ratios, things to watch. And basically it says after years of study, the most effective financial advisor practices have about a 44% profit margin. And if you're sitting around 44%, there's not a lot that you can do to optimize much beyond that. So let's translate to the charity world. If if the yardstick is 25% of your... You know expenses to to your revenue. What that really means is that if you think of it, that's like a three hundred percent markup or three hundred percent profit margin. So if we say a really effective personal services practice for an advisor has a 44% profit margin, but the minimum standard for a charity is 300%, which, by the way, is a not for, not-for-profit organization. Think about that. You know, if they're less than 300%, well, they suck. Well, you know what? That means all of us and our practices are awful, and nobody should come do business with us because we don't know how to run it. So you have to kind of flip that around for the donor to go, okay, let's talk about what that looks like. But within the charity world, the right way to do it is look at the organization you suspect may have of too high costs pick five or six organizations that are similar in size and scope and mandate and area of interest. And you can go to the CRA, Charities Director. It's a free online thing. And every financial statement, every reporting metric for every registered charity in the country is there. You type the name in the database, it pops up. You can see all of those ratios. Mm-hmm. And if you pull up five or six other organizations, similar size, scope and mandate, and they're all in that same ballpark, that probably means they're all running really efficiently. If you've got one that's way higher, well, that one should be suspect. But again, look over a couple of years of data because maybe there's a one-time expenditure that throws that. But more importantly, if one of those organizations is way under everyone else, you also need to ask some tough questions because are they understaffed? Are they being unethical in how they're paying their staff? There are some charities that pay people ridiculously low sums of money relative to the work that's being asked. And I don't think most donors would feel good knowing that because someone's committed to the cause, they're working for 60% less than they would elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to look at the bigger context and you can't compare a soup kitchen to, say, the Terry Fox Foundation. They do two radically different things. Their expense ratios aren't going to look the same, but you could compare the soup kitchen to soup kitchens in different similar sized cities and go, yeah, okay, they're all around there. So we're fine. There's a great video that people in the charity world like to point out. Uh, by, uh, it's a TED Talk, I believe, by a fellow called Dan Pallotta. You can YouTube it. And he talks about, we've got this all backwards. Like If we could raise hundreds of millions of dollars by spending more, why wouldn't we? Because in a for-profit business you would hire more salespeople if you needed more revenue right you don't fire the salespeople because you're paying them too much because then your revenue drops and and it blows my mind sometimes in the charitable world that boards come in and you know lay off fundraisers because times are tight well you should be hiring twice as many and paying with them more money to get good ones to raise the money and so we make this disconnect between the for-profit and non-profit world that unless you've kind of lived in both sides of both sides of it like i have it's it's hard but once i've had that conversation with people they kind of nod their heads and go yeah that makes sense and then the metrics really change because it's is your organization way below or way above someone else and if you're in the right ballpark and maybe on the lower end of of the medium then you're probably a really effectively run organization
0: makes sense thank you for clarifying that there has, uh, has been a number of other things that you mentioned earlier regarding, you know, for example, financial planning and, and charitable donations. Which interestingly, we're actually working on some of the modules, so yeah, in-kind, yeah, yeah. in-kind donations and so on. So I do understand the complexity of, of that because, you know, discussion, donations, equity, and kind donations. There's with insurance at least. There's three different ways of how you can donate yeah. with insurance policies. So this is interesting. Where I was just talking with our product manager two weeks ago about about that. So he's finishing some designs around. So this is going to be exciting. Well, um, you you make sure you let me know all. of <laughs> about it
1: because I'm waiting, waiting. You know, and 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 I'll be very blunt on this. Like I have sampled a number of different financial planning software over the years. And, you know, the challenge usually is in any given situation, you know, one competitor is a little better and better in one area than another. But I found it very hard on the charitable side to to get simple and efficient which i think can be done but then the other layer that comes in you know a number of the people we work with might have corporations and giving from a corporation again is a whole different ball of wax and yet that can be some of the most effective way to give so if you guys ever need help on that or insight i am there 100% with you with any <laughs> company wants to listen to me because i think the way of the future for a lot of great quality planning work is going to be involving giving. And, you know, one of the great myths is that if you give to charity, you have to disinherit your children. Well, the thing is, you know, you're going to give in three ways in Canada. You're going to give to charity. You're going to give to your family and friends. You're going to give to the government and be an involuntary philanthropist. Pick two out of the three. You don't have to disinherit your kids. You can disinherit Ottawa. And I don't care who you vote for. (laughs) You'd probably be thrilled to do that if given the option. And it's really cool to see clients'
0: eyes light up when you explain that you can do that. Right, and if you use technology in the right way, and technology is built for the purpose, of course, that you want to use this technology, and then, of course, your costs of servicing clients are going down, and that's the whole thing. So you mentioned how do we make financial planning software, you know, quick and efficient at the same time, detailed enough. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole crux of, of what we've been doing for the last five years. But you know what? Let's leave those conversations maybe for our, <laughs> uh, aside, uh, you know, outside of the podcast. I don't want to talk. we will do about. an informal after the interview. Yeah, that's we'll we'll do that. But okay, lots of thanks. You showed a lot of valuable insight in aspects. But what I want to talk about some, just before we wrap up, just I want to talk about some other projects that you have right now in your business. You know, what is, you know, you're clearly excited what you're, what you're doing, work with your clients and charitable nations and individual clients. But do you have any specific projects in the works right now? What's the most exciting right now for you?
1: So the big exciting project that we have right now is I have spent the last five years writing and rewriting and revisiting a book, renaming it a few times, threw it out a couple times after some life experience changed. It's called Driven by Purpose and it's going to be 32 stories um, about some of the really amazing people that we have worked with over the years and some well-known public figures and other folks who've made a real impact with their financial planning and their giving and talking about the lessons learned from that. And most of them are quite positive, but a few are on the negative side uh, because I think it's important to learn from failures as well. One of my favorite, favorite stories we tell in there is about how uh, the queen and prince left their kingdom in shambles and of course, the queen being Aretha Franklin, and uh, Prince being the the artist who passed away, known as Prince, but formerly was known as Prince before that was Prince and a couple of other things. And you know, both of them passed away intestate with hundreds of million dollars to their name, and they were actually really incredibly generous uh, charitable givers. And yet, this opportunity within their estate, and if you if you've seen the news, so that's quite an interesting read. We talk about Anna the Secret Santa, who is one of my favorite clients ever early in my career who was trying to figure out how to give to a family member who was kind and sweet and generous to her, but to, um, for lack of a better description, uh, screw over the greedy little buggers who were, were some nieces and nephews who were trying to swindle through out of her money because they knew she was worth quite a bit. And she wanted to make sure they got exactly what they demanded was their right, but in the worst possible way with as much tax burden tied to it as they could. She actually made it to, uh, well into her hundreds, outlived most of the greedy little buggers and were quite convinced that, um, the reason that she had such a long, lengthy life was she just didn't want to give them the satisfaction of inheriting the stuff they've been trying to swindle for years. And I understand that quite early in my career, and I, I switched firms, uh, went to a different firm for management, but I had to, speaking with the advisor, who took over, said, yep, yeah, she made it, uh, outlived two of the three, and the one who was left had to mention, had no idea that they were going to inherit anything in her notion. <laughs> yeah. So she was convinced at that point it was good for her to go. It'll be a fun read, and it's designed to be the least boring financial planning book that people will ever read in this country.
0: Wonderful. So whenever you have a landing page or just when the book is ready, ready, just let us know. We'll just link it up here. Two last questions for for you, Ryan. So this podcast is all about growing your practice. So do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Just one thing.
1: Yes, If you can talk to your clients about giving away money, I guarantee you whatever AUM you lose in your book, will come back to you many times over because of the bond and the relationship that you have built with your clients. And that is a lesson that advisors can't seem to bring themselves to learn. But to me, it's the most fundamental aspect of my entire career that I've learned. And
0: I wish more advisors understood that. Wonderful. That's wonderful advice. Ryan, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, maybe ask you some questions about charitable donations or how to work with foundations, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you?
1: Well, any listeners who want to reach out, ryan at quietlegacy.com is my email. Our website is quietlegacy.com. It's just in the process of being revised, but you can browse through there. And once the book is uh, up and running, we'll have a a website uh, that'll be tied to that as well. Uh, If anyone wants to reach out, uh, we're always happy to have that conversation. We're located in London, Ontario. For any advisors who are listening in in southwestern Ontario, always happy to have a a quick chat and a, a cup of tea or coffee. And for anyone who has any sort of interest or leaning, I strongly encourage you to join Canadian Association of Gift Planners. Mm -hmm. I have been at every national conference for over the last decade. It's the only professional event I never miss. And some of the finest advisors I've ever met are there. And uh, if you sign up for the conference, it's going to be in April in Regina in April. By all means, come and uh, say hi to me. Most people in the organization know who I am because I've been around for a long time and apparently I'm quite a character. So that's another great way to reach out and I guarantee you be the best C credits and learning of your entire career if you make it there.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. We will definitely link it up in the show notes. Ryan, thank you very much for coming on the show here. I really enjoyed the conversation. This was wonderful interview. So thank you very much for for coming out here, here and sharing all the wisdom with the listeners.
1: It's been my pleasure, Pavel, and we'll call it payback as soon as you get all that wonderful charitable goody stuff. <laughs> I consider it a debt well-paid. <laughs>
0: all right fair enough let's do that okay right. thank, thank you so much that's it for this episode if you enjoyed it i would really appreciate if you left us a great review in itunes because that helps us get discovered and if you want to get in touch with us please email podcast at snapprojections.com. thanks and i'll talk to you next time